Um, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 17, if you guys have your Bibles on you. We're back in chapter 17. So much to be looking at with Elijah, um, which is the series we're in, right? Focusing on the prophet Elijah, the life and not death of him. And we've been looking at a few different things so far. Sort of these two posts of what we're looking at as we dive into Elijah, provision and glory. And last week, we discussed God's provision. Namely, we looked at the story of Elijah and took from it um, truths about God's provision that we need to be reminded of. Specifically, like the largest takeaway was the fact that God himself can often be the one to lead us into deserts. God himself can be the one to lead us into hard places. Like God himself has intentions for our life. It's not always the work of Satan. It's not always because of fleshly temptation or spiritual warfare. It's oftentimes because God himself has called us to a place. We also talked about God's promises quite a bit. Right? We, one of the points was that God was a promise maker, or a promise keeper. We talked about how God's promises relate to God's provision. And the big quote from last week was that if you're waiting on God's provision, then you're leaning on God's promises. If you're waiting on God's provision, you're leaning on God's promises. And lastly, last week, we, we talked a little bit about obedience. We discussed how all of that we saw in that passage hinged on Elijah's obedience to God. And we looked at the truth that God will use our obedience as a way to bring about his provision. We don't necessarily earn the provision because of our obedience, but rather our obedience is the vehicle that God can use to bring us that provision. So that was all wrapped up of last week, focusing on God's provision. And tonight, um, I'm calling this message Provision Part 2. Because we're still focusing on uh, God's provision in this passage. So provision part two is sort of how I've been looking at this before we really get to dive in to the the other half of the series with uh, God's glory. And tonight we're going to zoom out a little bit, right? We're going to zoom out just a little bit further. And we're going to look at two overarching truths about God's provision. Like two actual truths about how God provides for us. You know, last week was things to be reminded of, sort of how God's provision works. But today is is two truths about how God specifically provides for us, the vehicles in which he does that. But first I want to just take a minute, and I want to return to our discussion on the Old Testament. A few weeks ago we did like a whole message on the Old Testament, if you remember. Spent time talking about why you should care about the Old Testament, why you should read it. Talked about what it would be like if you only read the New Testament and if you only read 23% of any story or saw 23% of any movie and and what that would mean for you in understanding the full thing. And so part of that Old Testament message was that I said I would make sure that along the series in Elijah, I would be sure to help you guys um, understand the Old Testament more, understand how to read it, how to uh, be able to love it more. And that means just talking about it every so often while we're in passages like this. And so here's what I want to talk about when it comes to the Old Testament tonight. 
I want to talk about the idea of parallels or repetition within the Old Testament. I want to talk about this idea of similar patterns that happen in Scripture. Like, if you've read the, the Old Testament very much, you'll probably have a bit of an idea what I'm talking about. Like, there's some times that you're going to be reading, and it feels almost a little bit like deja vu. You're like, I feel like I've read this exact same thing before. Especially if y'all have ever started, like, a Bible in your plan, you made it through a little bit of Genesis, and you're like, wait a minute. Didn't Abraham just say that she was his sister, and now we've got other people doing it, and it happens like four times, and like after a while, this begins to feel a little repetitive. Like, like I said, Abraham calling Sarah his sister a few times, and then seeing his own descendants do it as well. Um, it happens like even in the creation story, the rising and setting of the sun, God calling it good, like that happens multiple times, chapter after chapter, section after section of of God creating, right, in uh, those time period, um, then we've got things like the number 40. I mean, the number 40 itself comes up dozens of times in the Old Testament, something that just sort of is a recurring theme. You see it come up in a very repetitive way, and a way that, that we call a parallel theme. And what I want to say is every time you see that, it's worth investigating. Every time you see something like that, it's worth asking the question, because it's there for a reason. And, and here's the main reason that it's there. Um, the people of God have not always had the Word of God at their fingertips. So the people of God, God's people, have not always had the ability to just open up a book and read God's Word. You know, for thousands of years, um, there wasn't a printing press, right? And many times, if a community was going to have Scripture, it was like a whole community had one copy of Scripture. And that copy of Scripture was found at the local synagogue. And it was something you went and you heard it be taught. Um, you may only read from the Scripture once or twice a year when it was your turn to read from it. You may only read parts of the scripture because somebody in your family wrote down part of it and you have it in your house, like above your door or on your clothes or, or things like that. But you don't have this ability to just open up God's word and read it if you're the Jewish people in ancient times. And so the word of God was, it was more often heard than it was read, meaning that it was also written in a way that made it able to be memorized, able to be understood, able to be remembered. It was written in a way that made it easier for the Jewish people to categorize it into their brain, to know what happened and how God did it and, and every little nuance there. It was written in a beautiful way to be able to further instill it into your heart, which means that all those repetitions have a purpose. They're supposed to bring out a particular type of understanding as you read the Old Testament. And, and so, what I'm saying by that is, there's a few questions that you should ask yourself. You know, I told you I'd give you some questions to ask as you're reading the Old Testament. Here's a few questions you should ask yourself anytime you see the repetition. The first one is, how does this relate to the last time I saw it? When I see that this is Abraham saying that Sarah is his sister to protect himself from being killed for her as his wife. 
Like, how does this relate to the last time I saw it? Like, what's similar? What's different? Why is it happening? And that is, the, first and foremost, an easy way to study the Bible, to begin trying to get this idea of, of why it might be in there in the first place. So you can ask yourself, like, how does this relate to the last time I saw it? And then you can ask, like, how is God revealing himself in repeating this? How, what is God showing about himself when it comes to repeating this? So, for example, the creation story. What is God revealing about himself that for six days we hear of the sun rising and setting? For six days we hear that what he called was good. He's revealing to us he's a good creator. He creates good things. Something that would be instilled in the people as they memorized and learned it. So the whole reason I bring this up tonight, I know you're like, well, this is sort of a different aside. Well, the, the whole reason I bring it up tonight is because the passage that we're in has one of these. It has the, this little bit of parallelism, which is, is just really cool. Um, and I want us to see it because that's sort of what we're focusing on tonight. So um, let's go ahead and get into the scripture. First Kings chapter 17. We're going to be heading back into the scripture that we were in last week, and then we're going to be moving forward as well, because the first half is actually in the scripture we were just in. So 1 Kings 17. Remember, we did verse 1 a few weeks ago. Now Elijah the Tishbite, Tishbite and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel is, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And then last week, and the Lord came to him, came to Elijah, said, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook, and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. That's the first part we read into the second part. Then the word of the Lord came to him. So once again we see it. The word of the Lord came to him, another statement. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, there's that statement again. I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. So they're preparing to, to starve to death. Right? And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first... Make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. I know it's a lot of scripture, but do you guys see the parallel there? Do you see the, the few different things that happen repetitively throughout? Repetitiously? Repetitively? 
repetitiously, I think, right? Anyway, do you see that? Like, first God gives a command to go, and then he promises Elijah that he's going to be fed by the ravens. And then, just a few verses later, God gives a command to go, and then he promises Elijah that he's going to be fed by a widow. Like, two very similar occurrences. Occurrences that not only would make it easy to remember what's going on in the life of Elijah, to hear these repeated sentences where it's like, oh yeah, that's the beginning of this chapter. Oh yeah, that's the beginning of this chapter. Not just that, but occurrences that reveal something to us about God. Like I said, we're, we're diving into the Old Testament to ask the question, what is God revealing about himself in this passage? And here's the, here's the two things God reveals about himself. The first one is God provides through the miraculous. I told you we're talking about how God provides, right? First truth that you can see in here is that God provides through the miraculous. So verse 1 through 7, that's the passage we covered last week. We're starting to get a little more familiar with it. And we've already covered, like, the specific truths about how provision plays out in our lives, right? We've already covered some of the, the truths to remember about God's provision, and that um, now if we zoom out a little bit, we need to see the overarching theme that God provides through the miraculous, like feeding Elijah using ravens instead of using a normal, ordinary way. God provides in the miraculous to the Israelites, like when he leads them through the desert with a pillar of fire. He provides through the miraculous when God frees the Israelites by splitting the, the sea, splitting the Red Sea so that they can walk on dry land. God provides the miraculous like when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac and God stops him and then provides the ram for him to sacrifice caught in the thorns right next to him. And it's not just in the Old Testament, the New Testament. In the book of Acts, there's a man named Cornelius that God sends Peter to him, like calls Peter to go to Cornelius's house so that he can answer his questions and lead him to salvation. Like imagine being Cornelius in that moment. And how can you not see that as a miraculous provision from God to be seeking him and have these questions? And he literally brings one of the 12 apostles to your door to answer your questions. Jesus miraculously provides fish and loaves to those that are hungry after hearing him teach. And I could keep on listing things. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of examples of God providing through the miraculous. But, but what do I mean by miraculous? I mean things that are out of the ordinary. I mean things that can't necessarily be explained. I mean things that can go against the natural order. I mean things that defy explanation. What does that look like in modern times? You know, I had to think, like, all right, what are some of the things that I have personally seen happen in my life? How about someone who has cancer? Cancer, they've gone through the biopsies, they have tested it, actually grabbed pieces out of, can of cancer out of the person's body, tested it to know that it's cancer, they go in for their pre-chemo screening, and they find absolutely no cancer whatsoever on the MRI. That is a miraculous provision. Somebody specifically praying for enough money to be able to keep the lights on in their house 
in order to survive and get by with their family that has several little kids, only to get a message from the electrical company saying that they've been refunded the exact amount they need for their bill because somebody hit a telephone pole a few days ago and caused them an outage. I'm talking about the things that we are initially skeptical of. I'm talking about the things that make you question and uh, the things that oftentimes reveal, especially us as Americans, things that reveal our skepticism. You know, actually, that's one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is because we as Americans, like, we're naturally skeptical. That's just part of our culture. We're, we're so used in our, in, in our culture and how affluent we are. Like We're so used to seeing green screen effects and computer animations and television shows and magic acts that we actually pay for for entertainment. And we're used to seeing all these things that just sort of water down the supernatural and make us just look for how something might have been accomplished rather than being thankful that it was accomplished in the first place. Not to mention that we have such a low view of the people around us and such a low view of people we should be caring for that oftentimes when someone tells us a story, we immediately begin to think, well, maybe they didn't get all the facts right or maybe they're lying to me or uh, maybe they just didn't understand or maybe they missaw or maybe they misheard or maybe they're just not as smart as they think they are. And I'm sure you guys have thought even worse than that. You know, the examples I gave you are people I've actually met in my life. Like, I had a friend in college who had cancer that went in for his pre-chemo treatment, and all of a sudden it was gone after they had biopsied it out of his body. Like, that's a real story from someone I walked with that I know, even as I was saying it to you guys, you were thinking through the ways that that possibly couldn't be true. You're thinking through the ways that you don't want it to be true and that you want to be skeptical. I was that way too. If I hadn't literally walked with him through it, I wouldn't have believed it either. But you guys know what I'm talking about, right? If you're American and if you're human, there's a high likelihood you do this. But the truth we need to come to is that God is a supernatural being. And God does supernatural things. Now, I'm not talking about people performing signs and wonders. I'm not talking about the ability to discuss whether or not people do it or if people, you know, if the gifts continued from when the apostles were here. I'm not talking about any of that nuance right now and and whether or not believers have the ability to do it. I'm talking about God himself. God himself himself is a supernatural being. And and that's what the scripture right here is showing us. That God is a supernatural being that does supernatural things to provide for his people. I mean, even the fact that God intervened in your life is a supernatural act. Like, it's something that defies the natural order of things. Like, a person in the right mind doesn't just want to deny themselves. A person in the right mind naturally doesn't just fight their own flesh and their desires and naturally run towards God instead of the immediate earthly pleasures that you can see. Like, that is not the natural order of things. Like, Scripture is clear. Like, God has something to do with your salvation. God was involved with that. And just that alone is a supernatural 
act. So, so to like to just wrap up this point and drive it home, like don't be so quick to dismiss the supernatural. Don't be so quick because you are in a supernatural relationship with a supernatural being that does supernatural things. Knowing God means sometimes miraculous things are going to happen. Now, I'm not saying blindly accept them either. Like in a lot of things I'm going to preach, it's a balance. Like we talked about in 1 Thessalonians. Right there in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul says, like, test everything and hold fast to what is good. And he's talking about the testimonies from people, right? The prophecies coming from people. And he says, test everything and hold fast to what is good. So it just to give you an ability to find that balance, like, test it against God's word. Test it alongside God's people. Test it with the help of God's spirit. But when it's found to be good, like, hold fast to that. Sometimes God uses the miraculous to provide. You can see it story after story after story. And when it happens, I'd rather be found the person that worships him because of it, not the person that tries to deny him the entire time because of it. Like, I want to be found to be a worshiper when it comes to seeing the things of God, not one that just blindly closes my eyes and hopes that it doesn't exist. All right, so that's, that's the first truth, right? You saw that, verses 1 through 7. Just wanted to get to the point, like, God providing through the ravens. That's sort of miraculous in itself. We could have even used the point in the next little passage about the fact that the woman's bread, like, never ran out. Like, that's also a miraculous provision, right? But let's see the second truth here. In verses 8 through 16, the truth that we see is that God provides through his church. The widow here that provides food to Elijah, she belongs to God. The widow is, is one of God's people. We know that because she's following God's commands, and she even confesses God as the living God. Like, she says it right there, like, as the Lord your God lives. She confesses that he is the living God. She's the church. She is Israel. And God uses her to provide. That God provides through his church. He provides through the body of believers. He provides through the sons and daughters of God. So that's that major truth. God provides through his church. But there's sort of two questions. If you guys are applying this to your life, there's two questions I want you asking tonight. This stuff you can talk about in the discussion groups. But like, what should you ask yourself in response to God provides through his church? The first thing is you should ask yourself, how can you better receive that? How can you better receive the fact that God provides through his church? We need to understand Elijah here in this moment. It's not just that he was told to do something and then he went and did it. We need to understand the humility that Elijah had in this moment. I told you we'd be looking at a lot of aspects of Elijah, and this is one that's so often overlooked. But the humility that Elijah had to rely on somebody else to sustain him. But it, not just someone else, a widow. The widows and the orphans were literally the ones in society that the Jewish people were supposed to be providing for. Other people were supposed to be taking care of the widow. 
And here's Elijah asking the widow for her food. And here is a Jewish man asking a Jewish woman that's a widow for food. That is an extremely humbling moment for a Jewish man in that culture. To go to the people that are the least of these and ask them for their food and to give up what they have for you. If we can't see the, the humility in that, that I mean, that we've, we've missed the whole point. It's a super humbling moment for him, for any Jewish man. And whether it, it's physical or spiritual, whether it's financial or food-wise, or even just biblical counsel, are you humbling yourself that way to receive from the church? Like, are you humbling yourself enough to ask what you know you need to ask? To be where you know you need to be. To seek what you know you need to seek. Are you humbling yourself to a place to better be provided by the church rather than trying to fend for yourself? Like I said, I, I doubt that felt super great to just walk up to the widow and ask her for food. And nowadays, we, we, don't, we don't seek help from the church first and foremost, right? I mean... Not unless it's too late. How many times do we go to the church first with our issues? I mean, I feel like I've had a good chunk of conversations with many of you where I'm like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't, why didn't you just ask? Why didn't you just say it? We would have helped. I know that I talk about that a lot with a lot of my friends here in the church because for some reason we're not the first place you go. Just try to struggle with it on your own without realizing we're supposed to be doing this together. I know I've brought this up before. But 1 Peter 2.5. I want to keep on coming back to this when it understands to be in community with one another. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Like, Peter is saying here that the only way to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God is to be built into a spiritual house. And that only happens together because each one of us is an individual stone and it takes the stones together to build a house that is an acceptable offering to God. What Peter's saying is there is no Christianity apart from the church. There is no such thing as walking with God and avoiding the godly. There is no such thing as being someone that is a son and daughter of God and yet not seeking the brother and sister in Christ. They happen together. Holiness is a team sport, as they say. We can't do it apart from one another. So you need to see God's provision in your life and lean on the church in providing those things. And maybe as you're doing that, you're leaning on these promises that we're talking about. But you need to ask, is the church a factor for you in seeking God's provision? Are you engaging with it? Are you asking for the help you need? Like if, let's see, what, what are some big ones, right? Questions about what you should do with your life? Feeling lonely? Feeling disconnected? And probably finances has got to be some of the biggest ones that we're going to experience in this you know, generation at the moment. How often do you seek the church in those things and allow God to provide to you through the church? All right. So that was the first question you should ask. And here's the second one. 
And I'd say, in, in a lot of ways, even more important, not just what are you doing to better receive that, but what are you doing to better give that? What are you doing to better give provision? The widow had nothing left. The widow was prepared to die, yet she was willing to give what she had. Like, let's, let's just talk about giving through inconvenience for a moment. Like, when it physically doesn't make sense to give to somebody. She was collecting sticks to build a fire to bake her last piece of bread so her and her son could eat it and then starve to death. That was her intention and plan when she came across Elijah. And I would say it probably went against her natural response to give what she had left to this random man that she had just met. It would go against the plans that she had. I mean, clearly it did, because she even mentioned to him. She's like, I have food, but I have a plan for it. That's what she'd said to him. Yes, I have food, but I have a plan for it. And he's like, let me tell you what to do with that plan. So what does that mean for us? Like, in our culture, we're very affluent. We're not affluent. We're rich, right? In our culture in general, like, we don't worry about where the next meal is coming from most of the time. What are the things that we make plans for and oftentimes are the inconvenience? And I'd say our schedules, right? Schedule is something we hold so tightly onto. Like, our personal plan for what we're going to do for the day and what we're going to do for the week. And the thing we filter so often is, like, how does this sort of fit into what I already have planned going on? How does this fit in to what I sort of want to do with my week or my day? I mean, I'll tell you, as somebody that literally leads a volunteer ministry of the church, the culture is to first and foremost volunteer when something fits into your schedule already. To volunteer when something's already convenient for you to do and it's not too much hassle and too much trouble. But God had a different plan for the widow. She had her plans. She knew what she was doing. And God had a different plan. God had a plan that she would sacrifice what she had in order to provide to someone in the church that was in need. And God had a plan for her to trust him in giving and trust him in what she was sacrificing. Like, just like last week, the widow had absolutely no idea that it would actually happen except the promise of God. This man's like, give me the last of your food, and God promises you that you're not going to starve to death. And she had absolutely no reason to believe him, except trusting in the promise that God would provide. She didn't see that fulfillment yet, but she trusted it. And and I want to ask, are you like that? Like, in response to seeing that something that the church needs, in response to seeing that something someone around you needs, are you willing to sacrifice what you have? Are you willing to sacrifice your convenience? Are you willing to sacrifice your plan in order to be found faithful and trusting God and providing through his church? We need to seek to be the provision for others. Not out of convenience, not out of self-ambition, but simply because God calls us to. And he calls us to do it in faith. So that, 
those are the things I want you to discuss tonight, right? In our discussion groups, we break out in just a minute. Like, I want you thinking through, how can I be better at receiving? Like, how can I be better at humbling myself and receiving the things that God wants to provide through his church? And two, how can I be better at giving? How can I be better at actually just being the church and sacrificing my own plans and my own thoughts for what I have going on and laying my life down for what the Lord has for other people? Like, how can I see those things? And then to top it off, like what we're talking about at the top of this message here, like what are ways that you can look for the miraculous? And what are ways that you so often deny them? And why do you so often deny them? Feel free to, to think through those things, to talk about those things as we head into the discussion time. I've loved our discussion time lately. You know, I heard last week went really well, too. Um, thank you so much for leaning in, guys. I mean, this is what you make it, right? So um, I just want to say thank you to that as well. Let me pray for us, and we can just dive into them. Lord, thank you so much for your message that you have here through the life of Elijah. Father, um, what a awesome opportunity to focus on uh, your provision to your church, Lord, and through your church. And now, Lord, as we begin looking at the other aspects of Elijah's life, as we focus next week on your glory, on how you are a God that raises people from the dead, on how you are a God in which death is not an enemy, death is not an equal part in the equation, Lord, but is simply just part of your own creation, Lord, and how you'll be glorified even in the life had from death. Uh, Father, make us excited to read through that. Make, make us excited to see your glory in the life of Elijah and the life of those around him. And Father, as we rest in um, your provision this week, grow us in our conversations and through our conversations uh, tonight as well. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.